The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Perhaps you are merely a tool of divine will. That's a nice excuse. Humans have been using it since the dawn of time. I had to kill my enemies. It's what God wanted. Just because humans use it as an excuse does not negate the possibility. What kind of divine plan requires the deaths of tens of thousands of people? Good morning, London. It's Thursday, May 31st. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing, just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Good morning, everyone. Everything will be alright, and this is a place you can come to be centered on the right. This is just right on CHRW, 519-661-3600 is the number that you can call if you want to join us, and we have a very special show for you today. Today's show is going to be all on pretty much one single theme and subject. I have a special guest in studio here with me today, and I'd like to welcome, on behalf of Just Right and CHRW, our guest John Thompson, who is president of the McKenzie Institute, came down from Toronto, and he is an expert and consultant on issues of terrorism, organized crime, political extremism, propaganda, conflict, and uh, basically organized violence and instability all around the world. He's a consultant to many think tanks and governments. John, thanks very much for joining us today. Well, thanks for the invite, Bob. John, I have to tell you, I feel like uh, maybe like most Canadians <laughs> in, in one way. Uh, you know, when we read about, uh, I guess, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. Um, it's very confusing to a lot of people, and we sort of have bits and pieces of the information. I've read a lot of your, your newsletters, and as I go through them, and I see all the names and the terrorist groups and, and, the, and the networks and the connections, my eyes start to glaze over after a while, you know, because it's, it's so hard to keep track of it all. But I can sort of see the big picture. Just wondering what your reaction is to uh, something I brought up on the show last week. We had an article here in the Free Press that sort of talks about Canadians getting, quote, tired of the war, and that so many of them um, think that it, it's a mistake being out over there, we should be pulling our troops back, and that they, you know, talk about if there's any more casualties continuing, and we just had some again, I, I believe today, we're up to 56 dead, and 55% uh, though of the people polled on this poll said Canada should get out if casualties continue. And a lot of them believe that this country will be more vulnerable to terrorist attacks if we were to stay over there. What's, what's your overall take on that, that attitude? Well, I guess there, there's three points that I wish people understood more clearly. First of all, uh, we're fighting actually a global movement. You know, there's trouble in Indonesia, in the Philippines, and you just roll across the planet through uh, Thailand, parts of India, you know, or Afghanistan and Iraq that everyone knows about, much of the Middle East, but also, th you know, issues in Somalia and Darfur, and keep rolling west through Nigeria, and the terrorism threat in Western Europe, North America, and Australia, you know, right across the planet. And where everybody is up against one single phenomenon, the international jihad movement, whether it's sort of a Wahhabi, Salafist, uh, Deobandist, and, and, and Shiite, uh, Khomeinist uh, influences. But they themselves regard themselves as a single movement. They have a common ideology, common sources of money, common sources of training, and they have a common view of what victory is. It, and it, this is a world war. Make what, no mistake. What, I was going to ask you that because that's what I'm looking at right here from one of your newsletters, the McKenzie Institute newsletter, which, by the way, uh, if you want to visit the McKenzie Institute site, it's at www.mckenzieinstitute.com. That's M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E institute.com. And uh, you, that's exactly what you said here. It's the first thing that caught my attention. You are calling this a world war, and I guess you're frustrated with the idea that too many people tend to view the fighting in Iraq as being totally separate from what's going on in Afghanistan, as separate from what's going on in Africa. Well, actually, this is, this is not my opinion. Uh -huh. This is the jihad movement's own opinion. 
And you, you find them actually talking about shifting resources from Iraq to Afghanistan. And, for example, some of the, uh, the so-called Taliban that our, our troops killed last year had come from Algeria, from Yemen. Uh, from Egypt mm-hmm. and from Indonesia and uh, che- veterans of the Chechen wars in southern Russia. You know, they weren't local Afghans. They weren't uh, uh, Pashtun from uh, Afghanistan or Pakistan. They were imported from a considerable distance. Well, well, who's who's controlling the whole thing? Is Am I looking at it wrong? You say here that, you know, they're all connected. You say it's they're not proceeding from one grand design and according to a big plan, but the network's the effect is identical. Is there, isn't there someone controlling this? A lot of people think Saudi Arabia is really behind the whole thing. No, this time the, the, there's no... It would be easy if there was a, a Hitler or a Stalin or someone to look at and say, okay, you know, this is the person behind this all. Uh, the ideological fathers of the jihad movement are largely dead, uh, died 30 or 40 years ago, so, so 50 years ago. This is a movement that's been brewing for decades. And that's why it's also going to last for decades. So there's no pulling out tomorrow or next week or even in 2010 or anything like that? You pull out of one place, you'll be fighting them some other place. Or they'll be working, because remember, one of their their priority targets is actually to work on the uh, communities of immigrant uh, Muslims inside the Western world. Uh, And we've already seen this. They they try to recruit the second-generation kids, uh, sometimes very successfully. Um, and try and induce them to commit acts of terrorism inside Western Europe and North America. Um, that's part of it. It's again, it's a global struggle. You, you know, the average rational person looks at this and they go, "Why? Why are they doing all this? What's the purpose of all this? They, they can't see a win-win situation out of any of this. It's uh, uh, what's the purpose of terrorism? It's uh, it's uh, you know, it, you say instability is the goal, but what's the what's the ultimate goal of instability? If you know what I'm asking. Well, there's a, when you're dealing with a terrorist, usually there's a, a couple. There's a parallel sort of thought process. There's always the the ideological goal, the grand plan, which is usually actually unimportant. You know, with a lot of groups, it's always been you know stick with us, and when we win, everything will be better. You know, the grass will be greener, the sky will be bluer, and you know children will be healthier, and all will be well. Um, in the jihad movement, there is sort of the idea that. Um, they can bring around sort of the, the triumphalism of their extreme version of Islam. Uh, and also don't forget that they've been working on Islam for the last 40 years. A lot of the diversity, a lot of the tolerance, and some of the better features of Islam that developed over centuries are also targeted by the jihad movement quite successfully sometimes. But the other side of it is the terrorist is someone who, you know, at an intellectual subconscious level needs to destroy, needs to wreck, needs to hurt. So, you know, they they say they're doing things for an ideological purpose, but at the same time, you know, they, they want to see buildings collapse. They want to see cities on fire. They want to see uh, um, panicked people screaming in front of television cameras. And that gets them what? More, it gets them attention, I know that, but where... It's also personally satisfying to them. Was, uh, you know... I remember shortly after 9-11, uh, Bill Clinton was being interviewed, I think, on CNN. And he made a comment that was sort of un-Clinton-like to me, but he sort of said that, uh, you know, terrorism never works in the long run. It's always a losing proposition. That was his take, you know, because once it's there, you know, the rest of society ends up at some point doing something about it. Do you see that happening here? Or have we been asleep at the wheel for the last 30, 40 years? Well, we were used to a very different kind of terrorism back during the Cold War, sort of uh, warfare by proxy. We're also used to uh, the terrorism we experienced in the in the 1970s was sort of a Marxist in orientation. There were limitations to it. There were things that Marxists would not do that jihadists will happily do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the typical terrorist attack in the 1970s actually may not kill anyone. He was often throwing a, an improvised uh, Molotov cocktail or a, a pipe bomb against a, an empty office window, you know, in the middle of the night. Yeah, send a message kind of thing. Yeah, and it was all part of sort of the guerrilla theater and, and the whole language about terrorism and our reactions to it from the 1970s. And we're now are very different from the situation now. We're confronting something that's uh, very different and far more lethal and far more sinister. And, it's, of course, not just the jihad movement. You, There's been other sort of manifestations of terrorism in the last 20 years that have been far, far deadlier than anything we'd seen before. Uh, 
I think my favorite was, well, favorite's the wrong word, but... Uh, um, the classic Shin- examples, so yeah. to speak, yeah. Aum um, Shinrikyo, you know, a weird apocalyptic religious cult. You know, they're the people who uh, tried to light off biological weapons inside Tokyo and then finally put the nerve gas in, in a very clumsy and badly deliberate attack on the Tokyo, Tokyo subways. It, it, it's, um, you know, when I look at this, you, you suggest that... Um, Okay, so there's a lot of fronts going on here. You, uh, in your July 06 newsletter, you mentioned that wars on this, of this type have to be fought on multiple fronts simultaneously, that we can't treat, treat each arena as a separate case. Uh, is there any other place we should be that we're not, where we're not now? Well, there's limitations of what can and can't be done, and of course, so get, yeah. limitations aside, where would where might we be looking? Because that might be the the jihad movement of the future, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, uh, well, Somalia, but again, mm-hmm. the way Somalia was conducted uh, at least six months ago by the Americans and the Ethiopians was uh, quite straightforward and actually worked. You know, the Ethiopian army swept in when the uh, Islamic Courts Unit took o- uh, Union took over Somalia. Uh, and then the Ethiopian army sort of acted as a game drive, and there were American aircraft in there that did a lot of execution mm-hmm. on the jihadists. But, again, the, the jihadists then submerged. They went down in their cellars. Now they're popping up in Mogadishu and preventing any society, new society, from reforming. And, of course, in Somalia, this is a place that really needs help as much as Afghanistan does. You know, it's almost as torn apart. In other places, you know, it's... In, for example, the Philippines, well, that's the Philippine Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's their ticket. They do get a lot of support from the Americans and some from the Australians, but that's their business. Mm-hmm. And again, they have to do the, the whole multiple series of approaches. But other problems are uh, unsolvable. Iraq is, you know, it's turned into a mess. It is a real snake pit right now, and I don't know what the solution is. I, I'd like to get into that particular one a little bit more. 519-661-3600 if you want to call in and join uh, the conversation or ask some questions. Uh, John, you suggest, too, that there's three ways the war could go. Uh, I think it was, what do you have here, a jihadist victory, the destruction of fundamentalist Islam, or the world muddles through somehow, which you seem to think is the most likely scenario. Um, but again, that third one looks very dangerous in a lot of ways because... Uh, it doesn't end anything. It just could, could get worse rather than better, couldn't it? Well, there are no good choices. Uh, the worst of all choices is letting fundamentalist Islam win. You know, if, if you look at society, well... Isn't that what we're facing? Like when we have Canadian attitudes and even American attitudes on a great extent where they're all talking about we don't want to be there anymore. Well, up to a point, our, our, our public tends to wake up in time. But if you look at the whole experience of the 20th century... I mean, we've got all that knowledge about what happens when totalitarians win, when they run societies. Because we saw what the Nazis did, and we saw what the Soviets were doing in the Soviet Union. If the jihadists win, I mean, the Middle East alone, there'll be tens of millions of deaths. Uh, plus, they won't stop. It'll be, you know, they'll keep pushing. Sure. So there'll be conflict after conflict after conflict. The, the second one is, well, there is a, a point where democratic societies, and we've seen this before, Again, before the Second World War, we'll do anything to avoid a major conflict. And then there's the point where suddenly our society gets too alarmed, too irritated, or too exasperated. (laughs) And we're fighting an ideological opponent. Remember, in 1940, we were fighting Nazism and fascism and all the rest of it. Uh, We were fighting an ideological opponent. And of the people who were alive in 1940... Two and a half percent of them were dead five years later. If we have the same sort of open conflict against an ideology now, mm-hmm. the same casualty figures would uh, proportion would yield 180 million dead. So this is a place we'd like to avoid going to. So that's why the soft option we muddle through and hope somehow or other that ordinary Muslims take their religion back from the jihadists. You know, that still might have these regional wars that we're seeing that mm-hmm. could kill hundreds of thousands or millions. Gotcha. Well, listen, uh, if 519-661-3600 if you want to join us, and we'll be ba- right back after these messages. Some of you don't know, I am in fact, uh, I'm in fact the only Iranian comedian in the world, as to be said. I'm glad you're laughing. 
Because most people associate the Middle East with oil and phlegm and halitosis. <laughs> no, I know. I know, I'm joking, I'm joking. We're running out of oil. And you know, some people <laughs> try to... This is the Taliban, you know. I have to say, the Taliban, uh, they, this is why we're having problems. The Taliban were trying to make their religion quite cool and accessible. They said, long beards, women can't speak. They go, Ooh, rock and roll, you see. <laughs> They're trying to put the fun back into fundamentalism, if you can see it that way. It's only a shame they forgot the mental in fundamentalism. It's the only place where they fell down. You're listening to Feedback on 94.9 CHRW. Call in now with your questions, thoughts, or opinions at destruction yet, but don't worry, we'll put them there. <laughs> Last week, George Bush outlined his plan for post-war Iraq, then he colored it. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right with Bob Metz. On CHRW 94.9 FM, you can call in 519-661-3600 if you want to join the conversation. John, uh, those clips back there, people are always saying that everything we're doing in the Mideast is about oil. Is it? Is it is, does oil even play a role, or would we even be there if there wasn't oil? Um, no, not really. Uh, I mean, it's there's still... Not, not really, it's not about oil, or not really, we wouldn't be there. <laughs> Uh, we'd still perhaps be there, and there there are mm -hmm. 240 million people there. It's, mm -hmm. it's sort of hard to ignore them. They are, you know, this is the place where Africa, Asia, and Europe all meet. I mean, it's, this is the tr strategic crossroads of the world. Mm -hmm. So even if the oil wasn't there, the, the world would be involved, just like they were before. Remember the, the 19th century, I mean, one of the big strategic assets of the world was the Suez Canal, you know, right through Egypt. Mm -hmm. You know, that it, that's... It's always been at the heart of the world. Um, the other thing about oil is that, you know, if, for example, the United States, I mean, it was fundamentally about oil, they would have left Saddam Hussein alone. You know, the oil would have kept flowing, no problem. Um, <clears throat> well, that, that, that brings up an interesting point, too. I was reading in one of your publications there that uh, another, um, I guess, uh, general view people have uh, of the United States is that, that it's this imperialistic power and, and I re recall reading a, in one of your newsletters you're always almost laughing at that because you were saying the US just doesn't have what it takes to be an imperialist power unlike I think you said England and uh, what was the other country that you mentioned uh, was it well, France I France think. Yeah. You know, the history of that too the, the US is just lousy at being an imperialistic power <laughs> it's not in the history of the country so to speak yeah well I mean the Americans if you don't really, the Americans are hard to understand, and we're the people who should know them best. I mean, we're their neighbors, and and you go to Washington and take a look around, and they, you become aware of two things. That one, this is sort of an imperial city, sort of. Mm -hmm. It's filled with the monuments of this, but also, the Americans are an unfinished revolution, and what's more, they're an unfinished revolution with the working over the ideology of two hundred years ago. I mean, in, in some ways, you know, the rest of the world is. And it's postmodernist muck-up. Uh, the Americans are still dealing with the Enlightenment. And it, but like revolutionaries, one of the things about the Americans they keep trying to do all the time is to clone themselves. Uh, there's a great history, um, the, I think, the Savage Wars of Peace. You know, sort of the, it's mm -hmm. the history of the, uh, by a guy named uh, Max Boot. Good book, can't recommend it enough. About the Americans' attempt, you know, in sort of small wars, the, the wars that are the uh, part and parcel of what's normally considered uh, imperialism, the classic model. And one of the things is the Americans just go to strange places and they don't get it. You, you've got the U.S. Navy in 1820s down in the South Pacific going to a, uh, an island of basically, you know, Stone Age Pacific Islanders 
and trying to say, okay, you need a president, you need a Congress, and you need, and trying to clone the United States on this little island. And when the Americans try to clone their institutions in other countries, it's a lot, it doesn't work. You know, I've seen this again with, uh, you see it with Iraq. The U.S. has a military that's really mm -hmm. good, superb military. Um, but they can't really clone it in other countries. That this, this, this reminds me of a, of a phenomenon I, I sort of pointed to a couple weeks ago. Not to do with terrorism, but I was talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the protection that perhaps is offered to us either. Oh, I, I talked about this last week with regard to the monarchy and the Republican United States, where, where I said, well, both systems are basically can be compatible with individual rights and freedoms, but they're neither a guarantee. That seems to go deeper into the culture, doesn't it? Like, it's almost as if uh, there has to be some very deep thing deep within people, regardless of the system that they're in. That's almost what motivates the way they behave under that system. Am I making a point here, or am I way off base? No, not really. But in, in the British system, it's all based on custom and tradition. Mm -hmm. That's sort of what I'm saying. You, you go back far enough, but those yeah. traditions had their causes, too. Oh, yeah, they yeah. did. But also in our postmodernist age, we tend to really put those of small value. And so we keep eroding uh, some of the foundations of of these freedoms in, in, in Britain or in Canada. Mm -hmm. Where the United States, everything is bounded and balanced by law. And remember that... Uh, and the Americans feud about this all the time, but one of the things about Americans is that, by and large, they're inherently law-abiding. And they will argue about process till the cows come home and the rest of the world has you know, got bored and given up. And they're also law-breakers if they really disagree with the law. Yes, they do. But, you know, <laughs> usually it's on, it's on the side more of justice, I would think, in most cases. But there is that whole civic yeah. culture uh -huh. that, that runs through the Americans, and that's also one of the factors that inhibits the Americans from really being sort of uh, truly revolutionary or truly imperial. And again, you look at other things. You know, the, the British, for example, the British influence in Iraq is quite strong. They were only there for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. And yet they, they clone some of their institutions, and the echo of them is still right. in, in Iraq. You know, where, where the Americans have tried to, okay, you know, it, we're occupying Iraq, now we're going to teach you how to set things up our way. And they failed right across the board every time. They just don't know how to do that. Well, that's interesting because you outline, I think you gave how many reasons here? Basically four main reasons, uh, or four main causes of the things that have gone wrong in Iraq. And... Um, Firstly, you said that they kind of did not notice that this, the entrenched tribalism in the Arab world is just not going to go away just because you occupy it and set up institutions. The other one was that they've got this problem with the Shia majority ruling over the Sunni minority. They've got, um, um, you know, the whole determination of a lot of the uh, terrorists to keep the sectarian violence going and just keep everything destabilized. Uh, an interesting one that you put, too, you talked about the blanket debathification. Is that how I'd pronounce that? Yeah. Uh, when I saw that, I couldn't, couldn't resist saying it's like throwing the baby out with the debathification. <laughs> but basically, they, they gutted the whole, all of Iraq's institutions, purging them, you know, all their police things and, and this stuff, which maybe you're saying that was a tragic error, was it, that they should have? Well, when you look at... Uh when a country is being run by an ideology, a lot of people subscribe to the form of the ideology so they can get a job in the civil service. And so if you look at, like, uh, Italy particularly, but also Germany right after World War II or Japan, there were a lot of people who were involved in the former government who were kept in place. Mm -hmm. And the, the sort of the denazification or the defascistification could follow slowly or in the... About the only thing stable in Eastern Europe after the fall of Soviet Union was, again, you know, the, the apparatus of the former Communist Party staying in place. You know, and that's the post office, that's the police, that's all the little things that y you do need to sort of be the anchor for a whole society. Uh, and the Americans should have learned from that. I mean, it, it doesn't mean you have a smooth, perfect transition by any means, but coming in and firing everybody was uh, an absolutely profound mistake. Uh, one of the things they did, again, with uh, a lot of the uh, the army and a lot of the police... Do, do, they, re do they realize that's a mistake, or is that... They do now, oh, yes. they, they, And yeah. they acknowledge that, and they look at it, that can't, can they undo it in any way, or is that... It's a little too late. Too late. Yeah. The baby got thrown out got with the bathification yeah. waters. Now, you keep referring to uh, 
ideology. Does not the other side see the West as an ideology? As a, as a, you know, the Western ideology, you hear, you hear the term, is, is, is that not really maybe too neutral a word to use? Because isn't every country run by some kind of ideology? Or do they not see it that way? Is it more of a pragmatic thing for them? Well, it's... Uh, I know they're driven by an ideology, but I'm, I'm talking about their view of the West. Or is it different in every country? Or, or are we getting a different opinion from, quote, official sources versus the man in the street type of thing? I'm, I'm not even I sure what freely, question I'm asking. <laughs> no, I, I'll freely confess. Sure. I toss around the word ideology a uh-huh. little too easily. But, um, and actually, you're right. something I should have clarified a long time ago. But an ideology is often a substitute for rational thought. Um, we, nobody is free of it. I mean, sure. we, any, we any ideology is a, uh, yeah. is a, is a set of ideas, whether good or bad. But, but by uh, and large, at least the ideal in a Western society is that there's actually an affiliation for the idea of a civic society, a respect for the rule of law and sort of the, the habit of plurality mm-hmm. in, uh, our, our processes. Um, well, we'll come back to this after okay. that. We've got to take a break right now, folks. If you want to call in, 519-661-3600, and we'll be right back after this. How can you have such a casual attitude toward killing? I take my killing very seriously, Doctor. You are an idealist. I live in an ideal culture. There's no need for your kind of violence. We've proven that. Your origins on Earth are from the American continent, are they not? North America. Yes, I've read your history books. This is a war for independence, and I am no different than your own George Washington. Washington was a military general, not a terrorist. The difference between generals and terrorists, Doctor, is only the difference between winners and losers. You win, you're called a general. You lose. You are killing innocent people. Can't you see the immorality of what you're doing? Or have you killed so much you've become blind to it? The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the program. CHRW. Some people say that Christianity should respond, and I, you know, I'm aggressive, I believe, being the fight to the enemy. That fundamentalist Christianity is the answer to fundamentalist Islam. Is, is, is this how we fight back by getting as fundamental in Christian for Christ, our own warriors for Jesus, the way that Islamic warriors fight for uh, Muhammad the prophet, blessings and peace be upon his name? <laughs> um. Not in my opinion. In my view, I think what the West has is freedom. And that is what uh, the only way to fight all fundamentalists is with the fundamental belief that life is an end in itself, that it's sacred, and that the freedom of the individual goes above anything that any God can say at any one time. Welcome back to Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and you can call in 519-661-3600. John, what do you think about that comment we just heard? Is is freedom the answer? Is that uh, it sounds very simplistic on the surface? Oh yeah, just give them freedom and everything will be okay. Is well, I guess. Although I agree with the sentiment wholeheartedly, uh, how is that actually to be implemented? I think an even better answer is uh, uh, Walid Faris's book. And mm-hmm. Walid Faris is the, uh, uh, a Lebanese Muslim who's actually uh, a brilliant academic. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's written a, a couple of books. Um, the, the name of the latest one is just escaping, but it's still uh, off in the bookstores. He's actually talking about, because he is part of Arab culture, and he understands the thinking of Arab mm-hmm. elites. And the idea of uh, Western-style freedom and, and Western advantages for ordinary people terrifies them. And remember that one of the challenges of the 20th century for the Arab world... Isn't that an admission of failure in a certain way, that that what you believe in would not be accepted if, if people were freely allowed to accept it, isn't that? Yes, it is. Um, do, they, do they care? Obviously, they don't care about that. Well, you... It just If you look at the history of the Arab Middle East in the 20th century, I mean, suddenly you have the old order vanishing with the end of World War One, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. 
uh, and a realization they've got to modernize, got to keep up with the rest of the world. And they've adopted every model they can. You remember they flirted with communism, mm -hmm. with national socialism, with militarism, with uh, everything else. Now with fundamentalism, and none of it's worked. But because part of the problem is, as Ferries points out, is that the Arab elites don't want um, to adopt some of the, the standards of, of the Western world. They don't actually like the idea of uh, individual pre uh, freedom, of a political plurality, a real political mm -hmm. plurality. Um, of and, yet, and, and yet, you know, they sit and, and they can look at the West and see the tremendous economic success we have, the tremendous personal freedom, a greater degree of, of to use a very vague word, happiness, okay, in, in the West in the sense of the pursuit of happiness, the individual autonomy. Uh, they don't see these things as advantages? When well, they compare them to the, to the way they're living, you know, isn't it kind of... Well, it depends on who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're talking, say, uh, a member of the Saudi royal family or someone else who's the uh, upper edge of society, yes, they have those material advantages and they can fly to Europe and do all the good things. Um, but the man on the street, or the woman on the street more particularly, doesn't have these advantages. Uh, and the leadership of these societies spend a lot of time trying to convince them that these things are disadvantages. Uh, and, and again, you've got... Well, they the, are to power, that's for sure. Well, they are to power. And, and you do have this restlessness in their societies. And you've had 80 years now of pointing in different directions and saying, well, we, we can't have this. I mean, the, the whole Danish cartoon controversy, you know, was in one of these cases where you basically whipped up anger on the street to divert uh, attention. No, 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 speaking of just that Danish cartoon thing, I, I, I got your newsletter here. And you actually reprinted some of these cartoons. All of them. All of them. Now, interesting. I was watching, uh, there was a show on TVO, I forget the name of it, could have been The Agenda or one of those shows with Steve Pakin. He was definitely the host of this show. And they had Richard Dawkins on. And he made a comment that no one challenged, and they had people in the studio from representing all religions and non-faiths as well, and no one really challenged him on it. He said that the that the cartoon that the uh, that we saw in the cartoons we saw in the West as being the cause of this whole cartoon jihad were not the same ones that were being shown to the people in uh, in the Mid East. Is that true? The uh, portfolio of the uh, the cartoons yeah. was enlarged considerably with uh, some very crude drawings that would not appear in any. Uh, regular newspaper anywhere in the Western world. Uh, or one of my favorites was the... Uh, so even that was a bit of a scam, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. One of my favorites was a photograph of a French farmer who had just won a hog-calling contest in France. And he had a little plastic set of pig ears and a plastic pig nose on him. But he was, he was a bearded, middle-aged man. And this photograph was clipped, added to the portfolio that was used to whip up the cartoon controversy and to say that this was a representation of Muhammad. You know, with pig ears and pig nose, and so the uh, the results. Well, were. I, I could see where that would go. You're listening to CHRW 94.9, where our guest today is John Thompson, president of the Mackenzie Institute, uh, experts on terrorism, organized crime, and basically nasty things that go on in the world in an organized way. And just to let's let's go off to take another angle on this now. Both. Both George Bush in the States and Steve, Stephen Harper in Canada here are sort of suffering a little bit politically, <laughs> to say the least, from their stands on the war. you think this is going to be hurtful to the Republicans or the Conservatives here? And would the Democrats in the States or the Liberals here really be doing anything different if they were in power? Just in your opinion or... Is well, Do we remember, have a choice? <laughs> it, we don't, really. Not ult Ultimately, we don't have a choice. It is going to have to be fight the jihadists somewhere. Um, and remember that it was actually the liberals that committed mm -hmm. uh, 2,500 Canadian troops to Kandahar in the first place, to the danger zone. It was yes. the liberals that committed Canadian troops to Afghanistan right in the aftermath of 2001 anyway. Um, and again, if the Americans, I, I can't really see how things would be different. Um, Saddam Hussein was a, a thorn in the side, not just of George Bush Sr., uh, also Clinton. Remember, Clinton had ordered numerous airstrikes yes. against, uh, uh, against Iraq. And I think, I think four or five different occasions. And it, it was pretty well the top of his list. Uh, and again, right after 9-11, I mean, there was going to have to be something done. Uh, the invasion of Afghanistan and its liberation of the Taliban was necessary. But, 
what Saddam Hussein was and what he represented with the intelligence that was understood at the time was someone who was going to have to be dealt with at one point or another. Um, and I guess actually Christopher Hitchings did a better defense of... You just beat me to my next question. Carry on. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, you look at Christopher Hitchings' 10 points uh -huh. about the successes of the invasion of Iraq and what was accomplished. I mean, that well, this you know, was necessary. One of those reasons he gave, and I read your coverage of that, uh, which seemed self-evident, but I never thought about it before. And it was that at least by going to Iraq, we knew for sure that they didn't have the weapons of mass destruction just other than basing it on some kind of say-so of some mad dictator, you know, that you couldn't really trust. Uh, was that, was the whole thing a setup? I, re I remember the night of the invasion of, uh, of Iraq when Hussein gave his speech. Remember that speech he gave, and it was televised, and he basically almost gave a sketch outline of everything that's happened since then. He says, yeah, come on in, we're, you know, take us over, and then we'll start pecking at you like little fleas and gnats and <laughs> just drive you crazy, which has almost been the, the strategy up until now. Or, or either he understood the nature of his country and the way things were going to go. Um, was it a mistake to execute him? Was, it a, was he even a factor by the time they invaded. Well, the execution of Saddam Hussein was an Iraqi mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, that he was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, plus hundreds of thousands of Iranians. Um, he was a monster to a lot of Iraqis, and you could also see that in the unfortunate circumstances of his execution, that uh, re rejoicing and singing. There were a lot of uh, Iraqis who were very happy that he was dead. Um, you think about some of the other dictators, oh, that you know, cheated what was due them, I suppose, and maybe there's some slight satisfaction this way. But Saddam Hussein had also engineered Iraq. Uh, he stocked arms everywhere. I mean, there were arms dumps in Iraq the size of Manhattan Island. Uh, and he set the Bath gorillas, uh, Bathus gorillas up you know, to, to mm -hmm. be sort of the poison pill. But they were dealt with fairly quickly. They're, they are still around, but they're a fraction of what they used to be. Um, the real problem was actually from Iraq's neighbors, especially the Saudi uh, Wahhabis from Saudi Arabia. And remember, three times in the last 200 years, Saudi Arabian Wahhabis have gone into Iraq, and this is the third time right now, to kill large numbers of Shiites. Uh, especially the idea that, because uh, Wahhabis think that Shiites are apostates. Uh, and twice before they'd gone into Iraq in the 1810s and the uh, 1920s, sort of like uh, 1950s Klansmen in Alabama, you know, to make sure they keep the, the Shiites and what they think their place should be in the scheme of things. Um, and the idea that suddenly the Shiites in uh, Iraq would be able to actually uh, have political power and rule over Sunnis to the, uh, the Wahhabis was it, it, impossible. So they came in, and yeah, they attacked American troops, but attacking American troops was pretty, ha pretty hazardous. They were losing, at one point in 19, it's her 2003, 2004, 27 for every American they killed. So that's when they started to, uh, going the traditional thing of uh, massacring Shiite civilians, mm -hmm. you know, and putting out car bombs outside Shiite mosques and everything else. And, of course, you do that enough, and then the other side starts to respond. And then, of course, Iran has also been pumping in arms and advisors to the Shiites because Iran wants Iraq permanently stabilized. Uh, and so you, you've got this well, fragmented society with two groups of people pumping in fuel and oxygen into so, the maelstrom. So Iraq is, you know, I remember talking when I was on Left, Right, and Center with Jim Chapman way back when the war just first got started. And when you look at a map, at the strategic layout of everything with Western troops in Afghanistan, West, Western troops in Iraq, you can see almost where the target is heading towards Iran. It's almost like playing chess. Uh, is that, you think that's the long-term goal that's been in their mind all the time, that Iraq was just like, uh, you know, not taking the king down yet, but just the knight taking the queen down first, and then positioning themselves for what they think is an inevitability? Or am I reading too much into that strategy? I think you're reading too much into yeah. it. At, um, They're not that smart, then. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody is. Okay. We'll be back right after these messages. You have made a grave miscalculation. Oh? You have assaulted a Federation starship, killed and wounded several members of her crew, kidnapped two of her officers, and you don't expect a response. 
On the contrary, I'm counting on it. You want Federation involvement? Captain, the Federation has a lot to admire in it. But there's a hint of moral cowardice in your dealings with non-aligned planets. You accuse us of cowardice while you plant bombs in shadows? I am fighting the only war that I can against an intractable enemy. Now I'm fighting a big war against a more powerful adversary. Can't you see how that helps me? I'm afraid I can't. He's added another chair to the negotiating table. You added the chair, Captain. I am simply forcing you to sit in it. You're listening to Feedback on 94.9 CHRW. Call in now with your questions, thoughts, or opinions at 519-661-3600. And why is it every time when the media there's a problem with Muslims, we always go to Muslim nutcase with a hook? Muslim not case with the hook, how do you think? And they're all going, Allah, 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 Allah. These people, they are martyrs. Osama bin Laden lives in the hearts of every Muslim everywhere. Death to America, death to Canada, kiss to your seat about that. Death to everyone, you bastards. Death to everyone. Thank you. There's the voice of the Middle East. It's a bit like Al Jazeera saying, to get a, a balanced view of the West, we now go to Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. I think this affects East West because well, we believe in a death to all darkies and Arabs and Jews all over the place. We believe in establishing a white supremacist state in the middle of Egypt with its headquarters in Arkansas. <laughs> with the Lord by my side, the Lord and me by my side. Thank you. There's the voice of the Christian West. Welcome back to Just Right with Bob Metz. And our guest today is John Thompson, president of the McKenzie Institute. You can call in at 519-661-3600. John, what was your? What do you think about that? I noticed you're laughing at that. You think there's an, an issue there with the media, the way the media? Can, well, of course they're going to polarize the issue, but do you think uh, the com- comedian there, Omi Dahili, I think is how you pronounce his name, has a point there? Well, I've seen it working here in Canada. Yeah. You know, you, you know, the press goes out. We've got to find ourselves a, uh, a, a Sunni imam. You know, mm-hmm. I know several. You know, the one guy I like is a retired heart surgeon. You know, erudite, sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful fellow, and others again. They have no interest in Wahhabis, but no, they have to go over to the Saladin Mosque and they find a guy with a long, you know, <clears throat> Wahhabi beard and a Wahhabi little head on, and again, somebody who is uh, up to no good, and interview him. Uh, so, so often when I'm watching news on the Middle East and stuff, I feel like I'm being set up, you know, like the whole thing's being staged just for the cameras. And if the cameras weren't there, a lot of that wouldn't be going on. Well, because PR and the whole uh, you know that's part of terrorism, isn't it? Is is uh, is spreading fear through the message? Well, it, it's also the interest. I mean, the terrorist is is the violent political extremist, mm-hmm. and he's also got an interest in polarizing society. And usually, I mean, behind uh, every terrorist is the propagandist. You know, you look back at the Nazis, and you know, for Heydrich, mm-hmm. there was Goebbels. You know, that's that's the way it worked. Um, and if you again, if you look at the extremists, they're they've managed to win maybe the support of about ten percent of the Muslim community globally. Most Muslims again are sitting back; they don't like the look of them. But it's the problem you find in other societies. And I've written comparisons to Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia, mm-hmm. you know, in the time of the the Bolshevik Revolution, that the extremist minority with the agenda that's prepared to act violently when necessary and is organized for propaganda can control larger numbers of people unless that larger number decides to assert themselves. We could still head off all sorts of unpleasantness if, say, the Saudis were leaned on and told, you stop spending money on the Wahhabi Dawah. Stop it now. Mm-hmm. You know, and you actually find the Europeans are starting to move towards this way right now and just sort of keep wrapping the knuckles of the extremists whenever they pop up. And let the rest of Islam, it, 
Yes, I mean, 40 years ago, particularly before the Wahhabi Dawah with oil money started to get to work on it, it was pretty diverse, and that diversity is endangered. Um, there were 70 different ethno-cultural groups around the world that are inherently Muslim. Uh, and again, 40 years ago, they, they had, uh, well, a Bosnian Muslim would consider a plate of pork chops and a glass of cherry brandy to be a great dinner. And if his daughter married a Christian or Jew, he didn't mar mind. He'd probably married one. Or you go to Nigeria where a Yoruba Muslim would put on a, occasionally a, an animal mask to dance, his, uh, to dance and summon his grandfather's ghost alongside his equally notional Christian well, neighbor. Well, what's the ideological attraction of having become so hard-lined over, over time and less rational in a way? Well, this is a hard one to explain, but... Uh, Isn't it just political, or is it deeper than that? It's a little deeper than that. There's resentment. Um, and part of the resentment, again, is... If you want to look at the big picture, it's the failure of the Muslim world to adopt, to uh, to match the rest of the world. And the driving engine has also been uh, the Wahhabis from the Saudi Peninsula, and they look back at history because basically from where they, they they came from, that's where Muhammad came from in the first place. So there's always been a fair amount of chauvinism, you know, that we're the real Muslims. And you find this in a room full of Muslims, you know, with the Africans and with the Malaysians and with the Central Asians. It's the guy from Saudi Arabia is going to be patronizing everybody else because as far as he's concerned, he's the real Muslim. And there's a sense that their revolution has failed and they resent it. Uh, and that the world is sort of ganging up on them, and they can't adapt, uh, adapt to it. Now, this brings me back to something that's bothered me since 9-11. You heard the clip before the break, which actually, folks, that was from Star Trek. It was, I think the name of that episode was called The High Ground. It's an absolutely phenomenal episode. It was banned in England at the time it was first, uh, in Britain at the first time it was first uh, aired or, or created because they thought it was about the uh, IRA and the and that whole situation there, which it could have been. I mean, it, it, it's it's very uh, generic in its, in its approach to what terrorism and things are about. But what I caught in that episode that, to me, applied so strongly to 9-11, and I felt that ever since 9-11, I felt that 9-11 was, in a way, an invitation to re retaliate, to put that third seat at the negotiating table, so to speak, because I couldn't believe for a minute that anybody would think <laughs> that that would go unaddressed. It wasn't just a you know, oh, we'll do it and nothing will happen. Obviously, something had to happen. I, I, am I thinking even possibly right? Because isn't there some, something to be gained by some party over there because of Canada and the States? And I, I think you might find that with a terrorist movement that's pretty disciplined, like a hierarchical terrorist movement with a, uh, a formal political structure attached to it. You know, like the IRA and at the time in the 80s, Sinn Féin were but, often... But in the sense, we're looking at Muslims fighting Muslims, right, basically? Yeah, but with 9-11, you're, you're also looking at that, more of that, because it's a loose network. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you're looking more of that visceral urge to strike out, to tear down. I mean, what the, the, the World Trade Center representative, Bin Laden, was uh, American-slash-Western wealth and power and influence. And I mean, he, he saw New York as being the financial center of the world, a uh, world that he disliked. you it's just symbolic? They did all that just for symbolism? And well, and, and uh, of course, they did get a plan to uh, kill large numbers of people. Being the only goal, and that was it, yeah. in, in that sense, because they didn't offer us any, uh, you, know, old, you know, do this or then, well, then look, we won't do that. Like, like Logically, look at what they were lost as a result. I mean, the, they were training thousands of cadres a year in Afghanistan. They lost mm -hmm. their training bases. They could move money around almost openly. Now they can't. Your time is running out quick. There's still a question I wanted to get back to you on, and this is going back a little bit further in history, and I heard you talk about this before. And we're in Afghanistan today. The Russians were there at one time. And there's a belief when I talk to people that, you know, what are we doing there? You know, the Russians lost. How are we going to win? And I remember you putting a spin on it that that's not really the take you took on it, um, that Russia wasn't really, quote, losing. Well, uh, am I getting that right in some way? Or the, When the Russians were there, I mean, Afghanistan has yeah. actually always been historically easy to conquer. It's that there's no incentive to stay there because the place is poor. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Russians, what they had was their system collapsed behind them. That's why they left, because of everything else they were doing in the Cold War.
militarily they were able to pretty well go anywhere they wanted to. Also, the big difference is the Russians were fighting, you know, to subdue Afghanistan. The people who direct Canada's operations in Afghanistan are Afghans. We're working all the time with the Afghan government, with the Afghan police and military. We're protecting Afghan teachers. Are things going better, do you think, in Afghanistan as far as the war is concerned than in Iraq? It's it's a sort of three steps forward, two steps backward mm-hmm. process, but actually things do keep improving as long as we keep a focus on what we're doing and we, we get smart about the aid we're delivering. That's a key part of it, too. Fascinating. Uh, John, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, This is a subject we could probably talk about for days on end and still not only scratch the surface. I'm still confused about all the names and groups involved in this very, very confusing and otherwise, uh, uh, you know, depressing situation if you really look at it that way. But uh, I want to thank you for joining us today, and hopefully we can have you back sometime again in the future to keep us updated on uh, what is happening in the world. Love to come back. And thank you, folks, for joining us today. You've been listening to Just Right with Robert Metz and my guest, John Thompson, today. So uh, we'd like you to tune in again next week on Just Right when we will continue our journey in, in the right direction. So until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. We'll see you next week. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright oh. That's who should be involved in the war on terror huh? The mob Because the mob does not screw around And not only that, war is not good for the mob It's bad for business, it costs them money You know, The borders are closed So it's hard to smuggle drugs and guns It's hard to launder money Because the FBI is watching all the electronic transactions You know, Basic economics People don't leave the house They can't be robbed Junkies aren't making their connections Hoes ain't hoeing My god, the whole black market is so fragile The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.